0: I want to share with you a prayer this morning that's weighty and worth your hearing and praying along with. It's an anonymous prayer written by a Puritan pastor. And the theme is the love of Jesus. So I share this prayer with you, will you pray with me this morning? O Father of Jesus, help me to approach Thee with deepest reverence. Not with presumption, not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. Thou art beyond the grasp of my understanding, but not beyond that of my love. Thou knowest that I love thee supremely, for thou art supremely lovely, good, perfect. My heart melts at the love of Jesus. My brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me. Dead for me, risen for me. He is mine and I am his, given to me as well as for me. I am never so much mine as when I am his, or so much lost to myself until lost in him. Then I find my true manhood. Though my love is frost and cold, ice and snow, let his love warm me, lighten my burden, be my heaven, May it be more revealed to me in all of its influences that my love to him may be more fervent and glowing. Let the mighty tide of his everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and care. Then let my spirit float above these things which had else wrecked my life. Make me fruitful by living to that love, my character becoming more beautiful every day. If traces of Christ's love artistry be upon me, may he work on me with his divine brush, until the complete image be obtained and I be made a perfect copy of Him, my Master. O oh Lord Jesus, come to me. O oh Divine Spirit, rest upon me. O oh Holy Father, look on me in mercy. For the sake of your love. Amen. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Round about there somewhere so you can track with me. If you haven't been here over the last several weeks, I want to spend just a moment, and for those of you who have, I want to catch up on the storyline for a moment, so what I'm about to share with you doesn't just sort of pop up out of nowhere, and it makes sense, so let me revisit just a little bit of what's happening here, how we got to this point in the book of Acts and the events that I'm about to describe. Paul has already shared his mandates, clearly and emphatically, this is my mission, this is my calling, it's a matter of fidelity to King Jesus. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 and following, I am going to Jerusalem. But in Caesarea, on his way to Jerusalem, he spends some time in the house of Philip. You may remember Philip early in the book of Acts. He's one of the original seven deacons. He's also an evangelist. And in the house of Philip in Caesarea, God gives a prophecy to a man named Agabus. Agabus gives no interpretation to the prophecy, no moral to it, no outcome, simply that Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, affliction awaits Agabus squats on the ground. He takes the cord from Paul's tunic. He ties it around his own feet and hands. And he says, The Holy Spirit told me, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Luke, who'd been documenting all these missionary journeys, who traveled with Paul, who knew him up close and personally, all those Christians at Caesarea, that had been so influenced by the ministry and message of the apostle Paul, they couldn't bear that anymore, and they pleaded with him not to go. They couldn't imagine what might come his way. Paul's reply was this, I'm ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he goes. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's greeted by James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and all the other elders. And when Paul meets them, he shares with them the testimony of what God had done through the ministry and the witness of Paul and their missionary journeys, the great works that God has done, the birth of so many churches all connected to one church. And he also brings them an offering from those churches for those in need and the widows in Jerusalem. Paul was giving them a missionary speech, a missionary speech with a clear implication We're one church. We believe in one Lord. We have one faith. We participate in the same baptism. We have one spirit that has filled us all. We are to be one people. And by implication, he's challenging that church at Jerusalem. Continue this work. Don't stop. Follow up on. Develop from. Build on what's happened here. One people of God everywhere. But then they question him. You see, Paul was often maligned and mostly by Jewish people, not by new believers, but by those who'd refused the gospel in those places where Paul had preached. And Paul was under a false accusation of undermining Jewishness, Judaism. And so the elders said, Paul, you need to prove yourself. You need to reestablish yourself. You need to show your, your propers as a Jewish person so that this crowd will accept you, because Paul was there at Pentecost. It was the highest holy day of all. And So Paul agrees that he personally will undergo a seven-day purification period so that he would be acceptable to them in temple worship. But not only that, at great cost to himself personally, he would sponsor four young men who were about to participate in their Nazarite vows. Thinking this would appease the crowd, Paul complies. But as soon as he enters the temple, the temple area, Some of those Jews from Asia, some of those who'd heard of him and knew of his reputation, some of those who knew of the once pagans who had now become believers who were with him in Ephesus began to yell out and falsely accuse him. This is the man who preaches to everyone everywhere against our people, against the law, and against this place. And now he's defiled the temple, this holy place, by bringing Greeks here or Gentiles here. In his great biography, the Apostle Paul John Pollock, who wrote The Apostle, describes the scene. Those within earshot rushed to lynch and renegade, to lynch a renegade and a defiler until a milling mass swirled about Paul. They were dragging him out of the sacred precinct where no blood might be shed, pummeled, torn, with screams of frenzy in his ears. Paul was borne down the steps, every yard bringing a bruise. He heard the great doors of the temple clang. He heard the roar of the mob swelling. Now, if ever was the time to prove his own words, rejoice in the Lord always. The peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your heart and mind. He remained on his feet, but it was a losing struggle. Soon he'd be on the ground and torn limb from limb. Someone was twisting an arm. One ear was split already. His eyes were bruised and swelling. Was he to die without being able to say one word? And then Acts 23, verse 31, tells us what happens next. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he'd done. If you look at those models that you can find online or maybe in the back of your Bibles of the Temple Mount, You'll notice that there is the Antonia Fortress, which is affixed to the side of it. It was so the Romans could keep close eye on the Jews. And so particularly at times like Pentecost, when the crowd would be a a huge throng, perhaps two million strong, they would be ready if anything happened against their wishes. And so seeing the action, the frenzy, you can imagine them descending as quickly as possible, really in the nick of time, and they saved Paul's life. And that sets the context where we are today in verse 37 of chapter 21. Paul, now just arrested, bound by chains. He's about to be brought into the barracks, and he says to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Claudius Lysias thought he had captured him, a prize prisoner. There was an insurrectionist, a rebel. A Greek who had led a group of people to commit murder or foment rebellion against the Romans. And their, their modus operandi was this, to carry small daggers and to infiltrate crowds of people. And anyone that they identified as sympathetic to the Romans, anyone that they identified as an enemy of their cause, they would assassinate and then slip away into the crowd and they never could catch them. And he thought this must be the man because who else would, who else would create such a clamor? Who else would create such a, such a riot? He realizes in that moment that this is an educated man. He's speaking to him in his own language. He's speaking to him in in Greek. And Paul responds, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language or the language the Hebrews spoke, which was Aramaic saying, we'll pause there just for a moment, I want you to imagine the scene, I'm trying to envision this in human terms like I'm watching a movie, and I'm trying to imagine the drama that's happening here and the violence that's happening here, and you saw from the text already that we looked at last week, that when you get a crowd mob scene like this, it's absolute chaos, and people are screaming and saying many different things, and no one knows exactly what's going on, and people are presumably joining in just because they're caught up in the rush, the frenzy of it all. And, of course, the victim is just one, one solitary figure, and it's Paul. Now, I'm imagining what made the people stop and listen. We could surmise there's some supernatural work afoot here, even though the Scriptures don't say or indicate it. Maybe it's just simply amazing that a man so brutally beaten would now stand up and wave his hand and have something to say to them that made them listen. Let's hear what he has to say. And so Paul waves his hand and speaks. He's been nearly lynched by them. They intended to kill him on the spot, according to verse 31 of chapter 21. The Romans have now taken him in for interrogation. They want to find out who he is. What has he done? I mean, someone who would stir up a crowd, a mob scene like this, a riot like this, must be guilty of something profound. And if he's not the Egyptian, if he's not the leader of that group of insurrectionists, then who is he? And we're going to find out. And typical with Roman interrogation, it wasn't simply by sitting him across the table, offering him a pack of Lance crackers and a Coke, and saying, let's talk about this. Through violent interrogation, through torture, they're going to find out exactly who he is and what he's done. They thought he was this messianic figure that I mentioned, this person out in the wilderness. But then they realized, no, he's he's Jewish. He's Jewish. The Jews were beating their own. This is one of their own people. He was there at the temple for Pentecost for worship. And then Paul asked for permission to address those who had moments before brutally beaten him. And this is critical to understanding the story. Just to understand what's going on and making sense of it all. What was their primary accusation against Paul? What drove them to do what they did? What was their justification? In sweeping terms, they were accusing Paul of being anti-jewish that's the accusation he's anti-jewish now remember i described a little bit of that sort of culture my lou that they were in at the time they were trying desperately to maintain their sense of identity as a people the romans had mismanaged their leadership of them again and again and again and it was only 15 years from this day to a huge insurrection a huge rebellion against the romans that would crush them entirely and have that entire temple destroyed but in this climate To be accused of being anti-Jewish was as criminal as it could be. Remember what they said of him? This is the man teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and the place. Against Jews, against Moses and the law God has given us, and against the temple. What could be worse? He's as anti-us as he could possibly be. Here's the painful irony of that. To think that that's what they're accusing Paul of. What makes that so ironic? Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 9? I want you to hear his own words. Listen to his own testimony regarding his own people. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, the Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Do you see His passion for them? If I could make the exchange of my life for theirs, I would. They're the ones that should embrace Jesus, their Messiah. They're the ones that God has made so many promises to. This is their legacy. This is their gift. And they reject it again and again. And so if you wonder what stirs Paul's heart after being nearly beaten to death again by these same people, again and again and again, and this time almost fatally, to ask the the Roman, the leader of a thousand, if he could speak, but not to him. But to them. Can I speak to them for a moment? It wasn't retribution he was after. It wasn't a message of condemnation he wanted to give them. He wanted to give them the gospel because it's theirs. You should hear this and respond to it. So Paul turns and makes a passionate defense to his people. Look at the beginning of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, listen to how he addresses them. Brothers and fathers. With love and with respect he speaks to them. With kinship and identity. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in their language, they became even more quiet and he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that it's appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And When I had returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Before we break down that text, I want to ask you a question. Just think about this for a moment and how it might work in your situation. If you were timing how long it took me to read Paul's defense, his impassioned plea I would guess because I did this several times this week that it probably took a little bit less than three minutes. Three minutes or less. Imagine if you're given three minutes. You've got three minutes to talk about what matters to you more than anything in the world. You've got three minutes to say something that's the difference between life and death for someone. You've got three minutes to leave a legacy with your words. You've got three minutes to speak of Jesus. What would you say? What would you say? Would you be able to present Jesus, the gospel, what he's done for you, his challenge to that person who doesn't believe yet? Would you be able to give them the good news in such a way that they could respond to it if you had three minutes? Now this is your challenge, this is your homework, this is your takeaway I think every single one of us in this room needs to commit ourselves. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ and we don't have this ability already, this confidence that we could say it already, to think about what would I say in two or three minutes. Maybe you're on a trip somewhere and you're sitting beside someone on a subway. Maybe you've got a conversation with a neighbor and you don't have much time. Maybe you're talking with someone in the aisle of a grocery store. Or maybe you're given an opportunity to say something in front of your whole business or your company or before your team or before the committee that you sit on or before your friends after a softball game. But you've got three minutes. What would you say? Could you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God in Christ? Could you tell them of what God has done through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself? Could you tell people that the one and only God who's holy made us all in His image that we would know Him? Could you tell Him how we sinned and we cut ourselves off from Him? Could you tell Him how God in His great love for us, in spite of our sin, sent Jesus to come as a king and rescue for Himself a people from their enemies, that primary enemy being our own sin? Could you talk about Jesus establishing His kingdom and inviting us into it by faith, Jesus who becomes our mediating priest and our priestly sacrifice, Jesus who lived a perfect life died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and rose again as a demonstration of the might and power of God to save us. Could you call on them to repent, to turn from sin, and put their faith and trust in Christ? Could you do that with three minutes? Now let's look at the text for a moment. And I phrase this just simply in some questions. You can write down whatever little or lot you would like, but just to dissect the text for a moment. I thought of something Paul said that was kind of interesting, and I don't want to belabor any of these points because I'm going to get to a few hard questions at the end. But one of the things that Paul said is he's sharing his story there for a minute, speaking to those people, he acknowledges something about them. He says, I was zealous for God like all of you are. Why are they there? Why are they at the temple anyway? Why are they there at Pentecost? Because they're religious, They're religious people trying to do the religious thing because they're trying to do what they think is expected of them to be right with God as they understand them. I mean, that's religion in a nutshell, right? I do what I think is expected of me to be right with the God that I think I understand as I understand them. I want to be safe. I want to do what's necessary. But this is a good example of why good people need the gospel. Good people need the gospel. You've got a lot of friends and neighbors who are good people that need the gospel. Because being good doesn't get anyone into heaven. Being religious doesn't save anyone. You can be sincere and even as zealous as Paul and be sincerely, tragically wrong. There was no more religious person there than Paul. That's part of his testimony. Don't you see, folks? I was like you, and I took what we all believed, and I went to the natural expression of it all. If we really believe this, we better be crushing anything in opposition to this. See, that's why Paul went after those people. He went after those Jews who had converted because he saw them as blasphemers. That was his zeal in action. Good people need the gospel because religion apart from Christ is worthless. Any religion, any enthusiasm, sincerity apart from Christ means, means nothing. What's the relationship of Jesus to his people? Did you hear that as I read that slowly, intentionally? When Jesus appears in a flash of light and a voice to Paul on the, on the road to Damascus, what did he say to him? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Me. If you need one statement, in all the Bible is a proof text of the value of the church to God, the relationship of the church to Jesus, there it is. Jesus said to Paul, what you're doing to all of these people that belong to the way, to me, is to me. You're doing it to me. Those are my people. That's my body. That's my bride. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred, nothing more valuable to Christ than his church. And that church is not some nebulous universal church that we're a part of once we say a prayer, pray a prayer of faith, become a believer. That church has this expression in a local form of people, flesh and blood, joined together, committed to one another for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of each other who will finish well together by God's grace. And that matters. The church matters. Committing to it. Being a member of it. Using your gifts in it. Loving one another in it. Finding your community in it. This matters. This thing that we're doing here. There's no program, no presentation. We're the body of Christ gathered, and that matters. Jesus cares. How was Paul saved? How was Paul saved? You know, because when Jesus appeared to him, he didn't do this. He didn't say, now, Paul, close your eyes and repeat after me. He didn't say, say this aloud. He didn't say, Paul, I'm going to stand at the opposite end of this room, and you walk down this aisle and you shake my hand because I've got a card I want you to sign. He didn't ask you to raise his hand. So, how was he saved? And as a side question, of that. how would we know that Paul saved? Well, the answer to how Paul was saved is the same way that any of us are saved. Now, his testimony may be a little bit more extreme. As Jed shared his testimony with you, his testimony, Jed's, probably sounded a lot more like most of ours. I doubt many of any of us have a testimony like Paul's. But the testimony is essentially the same. It's the sovereign grace of God. It's the sovereign grace of God that invades a person's life. And all of a sudden they see him. He reveals himself to them. And overwhelmed by the weight of Christ, enabled by his grace to repent and believe, they surrender to his will. That's salvation. Sovereign grace expressed by God. Our response of surrender to him and that salvation. And how would we ever know if he got saved? Well, that's why Ananias said, man, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. He wasn't intimating that when you get baptized, then you get saved. It's, that's been the expression of salvation and faith since the dawn of the gospel. When a person trusts Christ, they repent and believe and they get baptized. And they don't simply get baptized into the nebulous universal church. They get baptized into a people, a family of believers. And that family matters. I ask this question, what's the purpose and value of Christian community? It's a metaphor, but it's important to see anyway. What does the Bible say happened with Paul after that encounter? He couldn't see. And he depended upon a man who just days if not hours before would have killed if he had been given the opportunity named Ananias and now of a sudden he's dependent on him to help him when he couldn't see to walk him through when he couldn't walk to take him by the hand and guide him see that's how the church works there's a beautiful little snapshot a little microcosm a little metaphor of the church it's brothers and sisters coming alongside each other helping them see when they don't helping them walk when they can't helping them understand when they don't know challenge them to obey leading them to the next step. It was a short journey, but Ananias, in that moment, is discipling him. What are you waiting for, brother? What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Receive your sight. By the way, that's the message and affirmation of baptism, that I am truly in Christ. I'm truly in Christ. What Christ did by his life, death, and resurrection, he did for me. He's made me one with you. Don't miss that theme throughout Acts. That's one of those big themes hovering over it all. One church, one people. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Whether it's a Gentile expression or whether it's a Jewish expression, it's one people baptized into the people of God. And finally, I ask you this question from the text as you evaluate it for yourself. What does the gospel call me to do? What does the gospel call me to do? Which is a different question than someone saying, what must I do to be saved? Well, what must I do to be saved is to respond to the grace of God and receive it as the gift that he gives. But there's a response of faith. There's an obedience of faith to the gospel. Paul didn't become saved when he got up and started fulfilling the mission God had given him. But the gospel does call us to faithfulness. It calls us to obedience. In fact, and at the risk of sounding a bit cliched, I would say the gospel calls us to a radical obedience. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul was taking up a cross here. What do you mean taking up a cross? He was willing to follow Christ to death, even to death. That's what the gospel calls us to do, to follow him. Let me give you some practical thoughts just for a moment. Paul is not giving what we would consider the typical altar call. This is not your typical tent meeting, revivalist sort of message. Paul's giving his story. He's just telling who he is, but more importantly, he's telling who Christ is, who he discovered Christ to be. And there's some clues here just for a moment. i only hit this briefly for time's sake, of how would you do gospeling? How would you make the gospel known? Talking about Jesus, given that opportunity, given the opportunity to share your story, how would you do gospeling using your testimony? Well, look at the four things Paul did just for a moment. He established some common ground with them, didn't he? Some common ground. Remember when we were in India and we were being trained to share the gospel with Muslim people in India, one of the first things we were encouraged to do was find some common ground with them. Even though that common ground may be a bit shaky. You believe in God, I believe in God, even though in my mind I know your God is not my God. You believe in rules and laws and a God who judges, I believe in rules and laws. You start establishing some common ground. You start talking about the God who justifies. How are we justified? How is a person made right with a holy God who has laws? And then our common ground deviates, and so now we talk about Christ, and it's the only means of our salvation. Find a common ground. Paul also shared with his life before Christ, not with pride. Not with pride. I would dare say, if I had to speculate, that Paul shared it with shame and with tears of what he used to do, of the zeal that he had that he misspent, the wasted zeal of a misspent youth pursuing things that didn't matter or pursuing the absolute wrong thing but he shared what he was before christ and then this he shares his encounter with christ he knows and some of this is implicit it's not explicit in the text but he understands and it's clear through what he did he understands in that moment that the person that appeared to him was a living god and now he asks, who is this god for the first time he knows who god is he says jesus of nazareth It's a declaration of who is the one true God and the Savior that he sent. This is Jesus, the full embodiment of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. And so now he's seen Jesus. And what was his response to him? Surrender. Surrender. Submission. Who are you? Lord. What would you have me do, Lord? And then the fourth part of it is his repentant life. And notice I put in your notes, not his perfect life. Your testimony does not require you to share the perfections of your new life, but you will invalidate your testimony if it doesn't demonstrate a repentant life. I'm not all that I'm going to be, but I'm not at all who I used to be because of the grace of God. And notice in this whole encounter, they listened. When he raised his hand to speak, they listened. When he starts speaking in their own language, they listen even more intently. You can just imagine a throng of people and how he projected his voice over that crowd, I have no idea. But perhaps standing on those steps and all that block and stone and the sound reverberating, he speaks. And after he begins to speak in the common language of the folks, they listen even more intently until they don't. You see, he gets to a point where he's speaking, and, and please hear this and understand This is an inevitable part of communicating the gospel. If you never get to this part, you haven't communicated the gospel. Clichés, sweet phrases, lines from songs, pithy statements on t shirts never get to this part. He went all the way to the point of offense. And really, there are two points of offense here. The first one most clearly and obviously is Jesus. I recognize the very one we have been denying, the very one that you've shut your gates to, the very one that we all were complicit in crucifying, and as a statement of our animosity towards Christ and his messengers, Stephen, that we killed simply because he preached Jesus, and then when he said, and then God sent me to the Gentiles, pff, that was it. And They were done. They listened up to the point of personal offense and then they were done. Listen, that might happen when you're sharing the gospel with someone. Because the good news is not good news unless you understand the bad news that it overcomes. There's a reason we call it good news. Because we live in the default mode of condemnation. Apart from Christ, we're already condemned. That's bad news. Already condemned. We bring good news to bear on the subject of your already condemned state. And that can be offensive. And it offended. I got 5 more questions that I want you to use to analyze yourself this morning before we close. I think of the the heart of the apostle here for a moment. I think of Romans chapter 9, I want to ask you this question. Do you love people enough to tell them the truth, even if they reject it in you? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. My natural bent would have been anger, frustration, at the very least righteous judgment. I suspect in that moment, had I been where Paul was, I would have been praying my favorite imprecatory psalm. I would have been calling down judgment. I would have said, God, in this moment, can I be a little less like me and a little bit more like Elijah? Any more fire in your arsenal, God? But he loved them. Do you love people enough to tell them the truth, even if in the telling they mount it like you? I know that's easy to say. That's that's an easy phrase for me to give and easy for you to fill in a blank. But that's where the rubber meets the road question right there. Because that's somebody who may not have a same relationship with you anymore. That, that's a family member who may suddenly be cool towards you. That, that's a neighbor who might suddenly avoid you. That's a committee you might not be invited to be a part of again. That's a promotion you might not get. Second question is related to the first. Are you bold enough to take the risk of personal loss? For the sake of the gospel. Are you bold enough to take the risk of personal loss? Paul's personal loss was obvious and clear. He'd already been beaten nearly to death and now he's going to speak again? The easy answer is cut your losses. Take some boldness to be willing to suffer loss. And I say that particularly as someone who's paid primarily to be a public speaker. The easiest kind of public speaking to do is motivational. I don't mean the easiest to concoct or write or deliver. It's just that it's the easiest to give because when it's over, you get so many pats on the back and that was so great. Oh, you really helped me. The hardest kind of speaking to do is to say, lest you repent, you will likewise perish. Without Christ, there is no hope. We are guilty of killing the son of God unless we repent. What judgment does there stand for us? That's, that's much harder. I asked you this earlier when I, queried you on, could you speak plainly in three minutes? Are you prepared to speak boldly and confidently in that moment of opportunity? The scriptures command us to be, by the way, to always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that lies within us. But to do it with gentleness and, and respect, the Bible says. But to be ready nonetheless. It's a biblical requirement for Christians to do that. When that moment comes, whether it's in an audience of one or 100, or whatever it may be in between, or larger. In that moment, are you ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you? Think about that. Prepare your three-minute message. And then notice what Paul didn't do. At no point did he ask them to bow their heads and close their eyes, nor did he ask them what was not asked of him. He didn't ask them to raise their hands. He didn't ask them to recite a prayer. Somehow in our desire the last couple of centuries to give God a boost, to give God a hand because he seems to be struggling in how he saves people, and when he saves people, we've manipulated the ends and processes. I wasn't there, so I can only tell you secondhand. I heard a recent event for students Wednesday night, the speaker, had all the students pray some clumsy prayer. I say clumsy not to be insulting, but clumsy in that wouldn't be worthy of dissecting wouldn't hold up to analysis as if by saying this prayer aloud, we're going to save everybody on this field tonight. It's not how the gospel works. Some of us know firsthand it's not how it works. Some of you said prayers when you were six, seven, eight, nine, 15, 20, only later for the Spirit of God to fall on you, the power of God to come on you, and you surrender to Christ. I was telling someone the other day the most common baptism testimony of 20-plus years of ministry, I would say, is probably this. I got baptized when I was, you fill in the blank age, but I got saved later when blah, blah, blah happened. I hear it over and over and over again. And we know that to be the testimony of of our church on a much larger scale. We have 700 people that are still listed as members here, many of whom we've not seen in decades. We don't know the condition of their hearts. We don't know the salvation of their lives. We have no way of giving testimony. To them. We have no way of giving affirmation. We have no way of coming alongside, helping, ministering, loving, caring. And in our own denomination of Southern Baptists, we'll have some four, maybe five million gathering to worship today, while 10 million more can't be found. How do we know when someone's really saved? We, we trust God enough and we leave the results to Him, because a person that's saved is going to repent. And they're going to believe. And they're going to be baptized. And they're going to demonstrate it. They're not going to contain it. They're under new ownership now. They've been given a new heart. The Spirit of God is in them. We can't manipulate that. We can't hide that. It comes. It happens. Those are five questions for you if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever here this morning or listening to this message, I want you to, I want you to hear this. Do you understand why we want so desperately for you to hear the good news? Do you understand why we're willing to be misunderstood or maligned or falsely accused? Do you understand why as Christians we're willing to bear the weight of being called bigoted or intolerant or narrow-minded? Do you understand now where we're coming from? Because this is what we believe. We believe that God... Who made this world and everything in it? He created you as well. And He didn't create you for sin. And He didn't create you for the enemy. And He didn't create you so that He could judge you and destroy you in hell for all eternity. There's one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ that He has sent. And He's the only way. We're not opposed to your culture or your language or your religion. We're opposed to your lostness and to your sin. And if that means we have to be the bad guy, if that means we have to say, listen, that's wrong and that's sin, and sin leads to hell. And we all have sinned, so your default mode is already judgment and hell. Do you understand now why we do what we do, why we say what we say, and why we'll keep saying it? And it doesn't matter what kind of pushback we get in the culture. We're not expecting the world to embrace this. We're not expecting people to love this message. Increasingly, we're expected to be treated like Paul or Stephen. But we're going to keep on telling the good news. Because how will they hear unless someone tells them? But if someone tells them and they hear, and by the grace of God they respond by faith, guess what happens? A promise of God is upon them. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will receive them. I will not cast them out but I will raise them up on the last day. There's a day coming. There's a day coming where just like the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus, inescapably, unavoidably, inarguably, you'll see see God in His glory. And it'll be undeniable. That day's coming. We want you to know Him now. As Jed said in his testimony, when he was saved as a seven-year-old, he saved him from a future life of sin. God wants to save you from the rest of your life of sin and all the pain that would bring. But he also wants to save you from the eternal consequences of sin. So if you're not a believer yet, that's why we're telling you this, that you would repent and believe. I'm going to ask you if you bow your head with me this morning. All over this room. Listen, for those of you who are not Christians yet, if you're listening today, there is no magic formula to salvation. There's no secret prayer code. But if you feel the weight of God on you this morning, and however you want to qualify that, you, you feel the pressure on your heart, the heaviness on your mind to trust in Him, then do it right where you are. Call out to God to forgive you, a sinner. Make it known to Him that you've surrendered your life to King Jesus. That you understand now why Jesus came, broke the natural cycle of birth. He was born supernaturally of a virgin. He doesn't... Carry that sin nature that we're all born with. And he faced all the temptations we have been faced with, but he didn't succumb to any of them. Why? So when he went to the cross, he could be an acceptable, pure sacrifice to God who said, This will be your payment for sin if you'll trust in me. And he was raised. He was raised three days after. Why does that matter? That's not just an add-on. If he is not raised, we're still dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. That he was raised demonstrates that God, in fact, received the payment for sin that Jesus gave. And he raised him up. And his resurrection is ours. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me will live and never die. Do you believe this? Because that same resurrection is our promised hope. It's not just life and then... Death. It's life to death to life for those who believe. Perfect life. Listen, that's good news. Open your heart and your mind and receive it today. Surrender to it today. And let it be known that you have. God, it's your people in this room today. Make us bolder. Make us more confident. Make us more diligent. Make us more loving. God, give us this kind of passion so we wouldn't just study it. We wouldn't just analyze it from afar. Father, sometimes I feel like we take Your Word and we just poke at it with a stick because it's interesting. It's a curiosity. God, overwhelm us with it. Overcome us with Your Spirit. Remake us and renew us. God, may we be Your people. Bold and unafraid. Loving kind, respectful, but unrelenting. Lord, may we serve You well. Lord, may we stand firm and may we do it together as a people. And Lord, now I pray that the good news, the good news that You give us in Christ Your Son would be seen and felt and believed in by someone today. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.